0: It's good to see you all again. Uh, Last week, around this time, we're actually two hours behind this time zone, and uh, we were preparing for the services at uh, a Baptist church that is meeting in a school right now. It's Encounter with Christ Baptist Church, and my wife knows how to say it in Spanish. Pardon me? Say that one more time. And contra conquisto, con Cristo. Are you impressed with my Spanish? (laughs) Pastor Steve mentioned uh, that we didn't eat well. Actually, the opposite is true. They uh, served us very well. Uh, We had wonderful food. Wonderful fellowship and great opportunities to serve with a couple of the teams that had come down to do work and to involve, uh, become involved in uh, an outreach to children and youth. And uh, it was very, very successful. It was a wonderful time. And for those of you who are going to be uh, with us for the dinner, for which you must have a ticket already, uh, and Pastor Luke said it so nicely uh, we'll be giving a report and uh, a presentation, of, uh, visual presentation of uh, the trip that we had, and uh, I hope it will be a blessing to you as well. I, I do want to thank Pastor Luke, and I want to thank Pastor Steve, as they always do, for providing a ministry in the delivery of the Word and in teaching that I know is effective and I know is true to the Word of God. And so I appreciate these guys very, very much. I have been asked this week more than ever before about the title of the message, The Lady or the Tiger. How many of you know what that is in reference to? Just raise your hand if you know. One? Two? Any in the balcony? No? That's it? Only two of you? The rest of you don't know what that's about? Okay, let me take you back many, many years to when I was in, I believe it was junior high. The scrolls that we read from at that time, (laughs) we were required to read short stories. And one of the the stories that we were required to read was a, a story entitled, The Lady or the Tiger?, Now, I may not have the details of this correct, but there's only two people in here who know, and so it's not going to make a whole lot of difference. But I can tell you the general idea of what this was about. A young man who was a commoner fell in love with the daughter of the king, and she likewise returned that same affection. And the two of them had developed a relationship in which They intended to marry and to be together the rest of their lives. When the father found out about this relationship, he objected to the point where he condemned the young man to a situation that allowed for reprieve, but also could result in his death. And what occurred was that in this particular kingdom, a person who had been essentially condemned, would be put in an arena. And in that arena were two doors. Behind one of the doors was a lovely young lady who would be given to this man as his wife, with whom he would spend the rest of his life. It was not going to be the king's daughter. It was someone else. Behind the other door was a tiger. And the tiger was kept hungry so that the moment the door would open, the tiger would attack the person in front of it, kill them, and dispose of them. In the process of time, as this day arrived, the daughter of the king learned which door had the tiger and which door had the lady. Now here's the dilemma. If she tells her loved one, which door has the tiger, he's going to die. If she reveals behind which door is the lady, he will be spared, but he will no longer be in a position to love her or to be with her. She would now relinquish him to another lady and he would spend the rest of his life with her. Just before this whole issue comes to a conclusion, the, the princess stands in the box that's overlooking the arena, and she points to a door to tell the young man which one he should choose. As the story came to a close, it closed with a question. Which came out, the lady or the tiger? I hated that story. (laughs) I want a conclusion. I want to know what is going to happen. Now, how many of you think the lady came out? Oh, okay. How many of you think the tiger came out? How many of you don't think? I, it's, it's like there's only about half the hands went up. There was only two possibilities on this. I don't know which one came out. You're left wondering. Is that the way it, that you remember it? Say, okay, so we've got the story. The reason I titled this message by that title is because we have a very similar situation arising before us right now. There is going to be an incredible confrontation between two individuals in which life and death is at stake. But the two individuals in this conflict are at opposite ends of the pole. One is an extremely powerful individual who has pretty much everything that this life has to offer. He's in a position of authority, he's in a position of great influence, and he is in a position of self-indulgence. The other person that's involved is a prisoner. The prisoner has very little of this world's goods. He has essentially a very limited realm of influence, particularly now that he is imprisoned. And he is an individual who, for all intents and purposes, does not have a very bright outlook for the future. And the two of them meet head to head. And what is interesting is that the one with so little, seemingly so little, is the one who puts before the other with so much two doors. One is the door of eternal loss. The other is the door of forgiveness and eternal life. And we're left with the question, which door will the wealthy, powerful, influential individual choose? Go back, if you will, please, to Acts chapter 24. And Pastor Steve read essentially the conclusion of the events that lead up to that particular part of this chapter. To set the background, the Apostle Paul had been arrested in the city of Jerusalem under trumped-up charges, having been beaten by the crowd, which that crowd had the intent of putting him to death. He is rescued by a commander of the Roman garrisons that had been stationed in Jerusalem. The guy's name was Lysias. Lysias came with a number of his soldiers and rescued Paul from this crowd, took him to be imprisoned, realized in the attempt to beat out of him the reason for which this crowd had turned against him and is confronted by the reality that Paul is a Roman citizen. He has not been tried, he has not been formally accused of any crime, and you don't do that to a Roman citizen. The commander, Lysias, would have been putting himself in jeopardy with Rome had he proceeded with this beating to try to get Paul to to say what the the crime was that had turned this crowd so vehemently against him. He then got word through Paul's nephew that a group of 40 men had made a vow. And the vow was they were not going to eat or sleep until Paul was dead. When Lysias discovered this, he got together together, Several hundred of his troops, some of which were cavalry, some were foot soldiers, and at night, he had Paul go with this group of individuals to a halfway point on the way to Caesarea, where the governor, fellow by the name of Felix, had his headquarters. Halfway there, the foot troops make their way back to Jerusalem, and for the remainder of the trip, the... Horse, the, the cavalry takes Paul to Caesarea and now he is imprisoned there about to face the governor who is being confronted with the charges that were brought by the Jews and now they've hired their attorney. They've hired a man who is not Jewish but a man who is an orator a man who understands the the workings of the political system and he understands what is going to be necessary in order for Paul to be found guilty and to be put to death. They come, that group of individuals come from Jerusalem to Caesarea and they are standing there now before Felix. By the way, did you ever wonder what happened to those 40 guys? We never hear anything else about them. My guess is they probably broke the vow. And uh, I doubt that any of them refused to sleep or eat after that. But we're not told. Anyhow, if you will, go to Acts chapter 24. And now we're going to listen to the accusation as it's brought by this orator from Jerusalem. Now after five days, Ananias, the high priest, I'm beginning in verse 1, came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullus. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. And when he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation saying, See, now, just, I hope nobody in here is an attorney. But some attorneys are slimy. Some. Not all, some. This is a slimy attorney. Listen to how he lays out his argument. First, he's going to butter the bread, and he's going to butter it on both sides. And when he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation, saying, Seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight, We accept it always, and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. In other words, we just think you're the greatest. The truth of the matter is, the Jews hated Felix. He had politically created all kinds of problems for the Jews. Felix was a man whose background was very suspect to begin with. This governor had been born a slave under one of the Caesars. I can't remember which one. He was released from servitude and somehow he became involved in the military of the Romans. He must have made a good reputation for himself because along the way he continued to be promoted until he was assigned the position of the governor of Judea. And so that's why he is now sitting in this place of authority. He had worked his way up from being a slave all the way to the, to the big shot here in Judea. He was a very, very immoral man. His belief was that because he held this position of authority, he basically could do anything he wanted. That included in his own moral conduct or might be better to say his immoral conduct. He also felt himself above the law. He could commit crimes and he basically would, he wouldn't find himself guilty. So he just lived the way he wanted to live. And so this is the background now of this man Felix and beyond that, What really brought the ire of the the Jewish people was he had made arrangements to have who the the person who was the chief priest by the name of Jonathan, he had him assassinated. Because Jonathan spoke out about the immoral conduct and the, the criminality of this man Felix. And that really put the Jews over the top. So they hate him. But they come out And they talk with this slimy smoothness. And then you get down to verse 4. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. For we have found this man a plague. A creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now they're putting the charges out and they're basically saying this. This man is a rabble rouser. He has caused a great deal of dissension within the Jewish community. He has caused people to rebel, and one of the things that Felix was very conscious of was defending the Pax Romana. And you did that so you wouldn't get Rome's attention. The last thing you wanted, if you were one of the governors of any of the regions that had been conquered by the Romans, the last thing you wanted was for them to be paying attention to you. And so whenever something would happen that would get the ear of Caesar or cause the the leaders back in Rome to be paying attention, that was a bad thing. And so whenever there was some kind of a disturbance, Felix would crucify the person who was responsible for that disturbance. So here comes the argument. This man is responsible for great disturbances, not only in the city of Jerusalem, but all over the known world. None of that was true. The people who were responsible for the disturbances were the ones who rejected the truth and tried to silence him and tried to not only terminate his life, but tried to silence the voices of those who were speaking out on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the accusations are not true, they're not accurate, but they continue. And so they go on down into verse 5, or pardon me, verse 6. He even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him. Do you remember what had happened in the temple? There were a group of people who were Jewish, who came from the province of Asia, which would have been to the the northwest of Jerusalem. They found out Paul's going down to Jerusalem. They are going back down there, and they're going to do this guy in. So what they do is they fabricate a story about Paul taking one of the Gentiles into the Jewish court of the temple. That was a crime that was punishable by death. The truth of the matter is, Paul had not gone in there with any Gentile and Paul had religiously purified himself and he's going to tell us that later on so that his presence even in the outside court which in and of itself was not a violation was absolutely appropriate. But these people that had come down from the northern part of the, the region they came down and stirred up the crowd brought this false accusation against Paul and that's what caused the ruckus. It was all falsehood. So he seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. Now look at what they say about this Roman commander. But the commander, Lysias, came by and with great violence took him out of our hands. Well, of course it was great violence. They're trying to kill this man. They they have to literally reach into the crowd, disperse it, and bring him out. And my guess is that the Roman soldiers did not disperse rioting crowds gently. They probably had non-lethal beanbags. If any of you were reading this past week. Okay, anyway. But the commander, Lysias, came by and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you by examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. They end their argument. They lay the accusation before Felix, and now they're waiting for him to hear Paul's side, and then to render judgment. On the next segment of verses, beginning there at verse 10, down through verse 23, we have Paul's response, and then uh, a bit of a reaction that uh, comes out. That will follow down there in verse 22. Let's start at verse 10. Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. Paul Paul is using tact here. There's no question. It's not slimy. It's just that, Felix, you have been a judge. You've been down this road before. So I'm going to put my case before you. And he begins to do that. I do the more cheerfully answer for myself, because you may ascertain that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. And they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone, nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogue or in the city, nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. He is basically just saying, I am not guilty. But I do want to tell you what I was there doing. Paul does not miss an opportunity to share the person of Jesus Christ. He is going to see to it that this crowd that has gathered against him, that those who are in the court of Felix, and that Felix himself are going to learn about the one true Savior, the one door that can be opened that brings forgiveness of sins and eternal life. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, that is what identified the Christian faith in the early years. You remember that the Christians were called Christians first in Antioch? That occurred some time before, but the the way this society saw Christianity, they saw it as um, a sect it 's already been identified as that when in reality, it was the fulfillment of all that had been promised through the law and the prophets. And Paul did not reject the law and the prophets. He fully embraced them to the point where he recognized that what they had been talking about and the one to whom they had been appointing was now fulfilled in the person of Christ. And so he goes on and he says, I have hope in God. Um, here, verse 14. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, So I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. Paul is now declaring things about which he had been enlightened concerning the reality of what lies before. If any of you have talked to Jewish people, and and I'm, I'm sure, and and maybe some of you have a Jewish background, what I learned in in uh, Michigan when we were up there I had interaction literally at a synagogue one time, and uh, it was good. I they they had invited me to come, and as we were talking, I don't know if this is reflective of all Jews but it was reflective of that particular synagogue. They don't believe in a resurrection. Now, they'd have have probably lined up with the Sadducees who did not believe in a resurrection, nor do they believe in spirits. Their perspective is, this life is it. When you die, you die. And they said there's no place in the Bible, or in the Old Testament, where it talks about a resurrection. And I really had to be careful... Not to be offensive, because I was there as a guest, but I did remind them that yes, Job spoke about the resurrection. I know that in my flesh I will see God. Daniel spoke about the resurrection. In the last chapter, he identifies the resurrection of the saved and the resurrection of the lost. And you can go to the Psalms, and you can go to a number of different places. So those who should know what the Old Testament says often don't. And my guess is there was just a complete rejection of things that were very obvious in the day of Paul that pointed to Jesus Christ being the fulfillment of the one who had been promised as the coming Messiah. So, he goes on and he says in verse 17, Now after many years, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation. Paul is describing how much he loved not only the Lord, but he loved people. Do you remember what brought Paul to Jerusalem in the events that led to this particular unfolding of this farce of a trial? He had collected money from the believers who had come to know Christ as Savior in Achaia and in Greece, and he gathered an offering because the believers in Jerusalem were going through a terrible time, not only of famine, but also of rejection by family members, by friends, and they they were living basically on nothing. And so Paul brings to them an offering to help them. And so what he's saying is basically this. Listen, I was trying to do something really good here. I, I'm trying to help out where there's a need. Now after many years I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation, in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me, who was uh, found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor with tumult. They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me. In fact, let's take it a step further. If there was a mob riot It's because of them. And they're not the ones who are on trial. I am and I didn't do anything. So, by the way, just thought of this. Have you ever been falsely accused of anything? Have people ever looked at you and and said, Oh, you did this or you said that or this. And you know you didn't. How do you respond? Well, maybe we have a pattern here. You tell the truth and you trust the Lord. And sometimes that's all you can do. And that's what Paul's going to do. He tells the truth, and now he trusts the Lord. He says, Or else let those who are here themselves say, if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council. Unless it is for this one statement, which I cried out standing among them, concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. You know what he's talking about here? He is telling them, Hey, you want to know the truth? There's not only a resurrection of the dead, but the first fruits of all who are going to rise already rose. Never to die again. There were people who had been resurrected from the dead before. And their scriptures spoke about that with Elijah, with Elisha. There is evidence that Jesus raised several people from the dead. The one who drew the most attention was a fellow by the name of Lazarus. And that's why they wanted Jesus dead. Because you cannot deny a guy that has been dead for days whose body has already begun to deteriorate to the point of behold he, uh, the King James I think puts it this way, behold he stinketh. Isn't that a great? That's one of the few places I love the old English. Behold, he stinketh. Well, he stunk until the Lord turned everything around and gave him his life back. But you know what? He died again. He died again. And uh, Jesus is the one who rose from the dead never to die again. The first fruits of those who sleep in him. So, Paul brings us to this conclusion, and at this point, if you were the judge, what would you say? Well, you might want more more evidence, you might want more information, but here's what I believe is occurring. I think at this point, Felix already knew Paul was innocent. The charges were not substantiated. The charges were essentially not a violation of any Roman law. It was an issue related completely to the Jews and even though the Romans respected the religious traditions of the peoples that they conquered, they would look at this and recognize Paul did nothing that was worthy of death. There is no evidence even indicating that he was the reason for which the crowds had gotten together and started this mob action. Felix knew that. So, what does he do? Well, Felix is a champion of procrastination. And if you want to find out more about that, come back next week and I'll tell you. Pastor Steve, now I know how it feels. Forget it. All right, I'll tell you now. He kept Paul in prison for two more years. And he kept him imprisoned because he wanted Paul to pay him a bribe. This is the nature of this guy, Felix. He wanted money to let Paul go, even knowing he is innocent. For those two years, I really believe the Lord was at work. And and these are the things that I think point out to us, that even when we do not understand what God is doing, When we're going through the difficult times in life, he is still at work, he still has a purpose, and there are things he's doing that we may never fully understand, but he is doing them for his own glory and for our good. If we love him and are called according to his purpose, that we know. What would this be for? Well, Paul is going to have a major responsibility on his hands in the coming years. He is going to have to go to Rome and it is not going to be an easy trip to get there and it's not going to be an easy time once he arrives there. And I think the Lord is giving him some time to regroup. He has just come back from his third missionary journey. He is essentially within 12 days of returning from that journey, wiped out, spent, expended, and now he has time in an environment where he can just rest. And so he does. I think there was another thing that was involved. There are three people with whom he interacts during this two-year period who are also believers. One is Aristarchus. Another is Philip. But the third is a man by the name of Luke. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and... Wrote this book we are studying right now, the book of Acts. You know, what I believe he was doing for two years, getting the first hand account of all that went on in Paul's ministries. And the Holy Spirit of God carries him along so that he, what he writes in the gospel and in this book, are absolutely accurate reflections of everything that happened in Paul's ministry that God wanted recorded for us, so that we would have the truth through the Word of God that was written under the direction of the Spirit so that the final Word of God is His inspired Word. And so we have the truth. The story doesn't end here. Somebody else enters the picture. But when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, he had already been confronted concerning the issues relating to Christ. He had been confronted with the gospel. He understood what was going on. But he adjourned the proceedings and said... When Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will make a decision on your case. You know what's interesting? We have no evidence that Lysias ever was called to come. And to our knowledge, he never showed up. That's why Felix could keep Paul in prison. If if Lysias had come, everything would have been cleared up. It would have all been out in the open. There would have been an independent testimony that indicated Paul's innocence. But He never shows. Uh, Not that he doesn't show up. I I just don't think Felix ever wanted him to come. And so he could keep Paul until Paul would give him uh, a bribe. So he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. That was a very important thing. The only way you could live with any comfort, with any uh, assurance, is if your friends provided for you. And after some days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla. Who is Drusilla? Drusilla was the last daughter of Herod Agrippa I. She had married a guy who historically, to us, is probably somebody very, uh, obscure. Azusus, I believe it was. Let me, let me spell it for you. It was A, A-Z-I-Z-U-S. A-Z-I-Z-US. He was the king of a region known as Emeza, E M-E-Z-A. Herod was enamored with Drusilla and got her to leave her husband and marry him. This was at least, I believe, if the historic record, if I if I remember correctly, was at least his fourth wife. I think. Don't don't quote me on that. But They're in this together. Their immorality, their lack of ethics. And as you go on, here's what we read. She was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid. Have we heard about the message of life Bringing fear. Well, the answer is yes. Jesus spoke about a parallel issue to that. He said, don't fear those who can kill the body, and that's all they can do. But fear the one who can take your life and then condemn you to hell for all eternity. That's the one you fear. We came across a guy who had been given... a. a, A face-to-face confrontation with the realities of who Christ is. And this man was also involved in a jail situation. He was the jailer at Philippi. And he became afraid. But he did the right thing. He chose the right door. What must I do to be saved? Isn't that the logical question that everybody should ask? There is a God who created everything that we see. He has given testimony to His deity, to His glory, to His power, to His orderliness. Through the things that He has created, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. No one has an excuse to deny the true and the living God. And if there is a God in heaven who has identified Himself as being absolutely holy, whose holiness we have violated by our sin, wouldn't there be a consequence for that? And the answer is yes. You would think that the logical question would be, what must I do to be saved that's not what Felix did look at what he does go away for now when I have a convenient time I will call for you what's a convenient time what's a convenient time that's why the Lord said today is the day of salvation How many of you know where you will be tomorrow? Oh, I've got it all planned out. I'm going to be at work. I'm going to be at home. Oh, I'm going to be on the road. I am going to be traveling to such and such. Oh, yeah. You're sure of that? You're positive. I have an idea where I'm going to be tomorrow, but I'm not positive. I have plans. But the Lord may say, no. It's time to come home. None of us have a guarantee for tomorrow. Nobody has a guarantee for a more convenient time than right now. Right now. Felix appears to be choosing the wrong door. Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given him by Paul, that he might release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. But after two years, Portius Festus succeeded Felix. And Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. So there it is. There's the whole drama. Now the question is, to which door did Paul point? And you already know the answer. He pointed to the door behind which was life. And he did it by focusing on three specific truths that are all given to us in one verse. Look down there at verse 25. It says, As he reasoned about righteousness. Why would he reason about righteousness? Well, it's because God demands righteousness. God is not going to have dwelling in His presence sinful creatures who have lived in violation of His holy standards. He requires righteousness. And when Paul wrote to the Philippians, I want to read you what he said. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. From God by faith. This is the way one receives a standing of righteousness. God requires it and God provided for it. For He has made Him, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin to become sin for us. That we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Last Sunday, I had a chance to ask the people in the congregation, where are you right now? And they must have thought, what a stupid gringo. (laughs) We're right here. But some of them caught on immediately. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, your physical presence is right here. But in the eyes of God, we have been seated with Christ at the right hand of the Father. Being in Him, so that when the Father looks at the Son, He sees every everyone who by faith in Jesus Christ, and the work that He did at Calvary, who have been declared righteous for all eternity. Do you know where I am right now? I'm here, but I'm also in heaven. Seated at the right hand of the Father, in The Son. It's the only way I can have a righteous standing because I don't have any of my own righteousness. There's nothing to boast. Only Christ. And so, God provides it and then He imputes it. Romans, the fourth chapter, the fifth verse. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, His faith is accounted for righteousness. You want to have a right standing before your Creator? A standing that allows the Creator to look at you in the perfection of His Son? Then you must come to Him through faith in that death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And apart from that, there is no hope, there is no forgiveness, there is no life. It's all found in Christ alone. So Paul spoke to Felix. And you know what he's doing? He's saying, pick that door. Pick that door. That didn't convince him. He talked to him about self-control. Now that, that would be a pretty interesting discussion because uh, Felix was a little bit lacking in this regard. He lacked in self-control That in and of itself, there were some things that were not completely wrong. There are are passions that we have that are righteously fulfilled. Uh, We talk about people having a passion to serve Christ. That is a good passion, to serve Christ. There are people who have a passion about different ministries that they're involved in. Uh, Patty has a passion for this Christmas child thing. She loads up my email with all of these notices about toothbrushes and sneakers and books. And any of you who are getting these, I've had to put her down as... What, what, what is that? Spam! <laughs> Patty Spam. And, and I, I really haven't done that. I do get them and I do read them. But... What point was I trying to make? <laughs> oh, passions. There, there are passions that are good. There are things that are absolutely right. Um, it's right for a man and a woman to have intimacy if they're married and after they're married, not before and not with anyone else, a husband, And a wife. Till death do they part. Well, Felix, he takes something that is good and right and he turns it into something that's ugly. He just satisfies his passions all over the place. Paul talks to him about the reality of who and what he is. And then he talks to him about the restraint of those things that are absolutely evil all the time. The cruelty. The greed, the things that characterized Felix's governorship. He was a man who satisfied not only the, indul- uh, the, the passions that could be good, but he satisfied the passions that were not good in and of themselves. And there is no way in the world that Felix can stand there without saying, I am a sinner. Today I'm hearing people say they do not believe they're guilty of sin. Years ago, I never heard that. Everybody that I would try to tell about Christ would say, yeah, I know I'm a sinner. Well, I've got good news for you. But I'll tell you what, I don't have any good news for people that are not sinners. They're, i got nothing to tell you. And by the way, I'm in good company. Because that's exactly what Jesus said. He said, if, if you're not sick, you don't need a physician. He said, I didn't come to call the righteous, and he was saying that tongue-in-cheek, but the unrighteous. If you can't even see that you're a sinner, then what need is there of a Savior? We don't just add Jesus to our bag. We turn to Him as the only one who can forgive our sins through His sacrifice. So, he talked to him about self-control, and guess what, Felix? You don't have it you're a sinner. You you have violated God's holy standard and the truth is Felix is not the only one. I am too. And so are you. So we find ourselves in a very similar situation to what Felix was in. And then he talked to him about judgment. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. The Lord said in Matthew 25 When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. Guess what happens to the goats? Depart from me, I never knew you. To the sheep, enter into the joy of your Lord. There's going to be a judgment, and it's going to be severe. How severe? the ultimate destination of those who never receive Christ as Savior is not hell. You're not going to spend eternity in hell. You're going to spend eternity in the lake of fire. Because hell is going to give up the dead. And death, and the sea, and everywhere that an unsaved person might be, All will be brought before a great white throne. And if their names are not found written in the Lamb's book of life, they are cast into the lake of fire where the smoke of their torment ascends forever. The place that is prepared for the devil and his angels. Unless they're saved by the blood of the Lamb. On the flight back from Nicaragua, I'm sitting next to a young man, probably in his 20s. Tattoos, kind of all over the place. And a uh, very nice young man. Didn't say much. He he kind of slept a good portion of the way back. Debbie was on the other side. And uh, just before we land, I look, and on his forearm, in big letters, S-A-V-E-D. I wanted to praise the Lord, too. I said, what, what does that refer to? I said, from what... what how, are you, how are you saved? His answer, by the blood of the Lamb. It was great. And at that point, it's like we had instant fellowship. And we talked about what Christ had done and how we could serve Him and what we had been doing down in Nicaragua. Unless you're saved... You will be judged. It is inevitable and it's eternal. It's eternal. There will be no second chance. The judgment is final. Nobody gets another chance. What did Felix do? Hey, There's the door, Felix, Drusilla. Go through that door, through the door of Christ. He is the hope. He is the one who brings life. Choose that door. Because if you choose that door, it's an eternal loss. Felix hardened his heart. And there is no evidence in Scripture that he ever made the right choice. For him, it's done. But what about for you? If you trust Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, right now, right where you're seated, recognizing that you are a sinful individual who needs a Savior, and Jesus Christ is the only way, truth, and life. And no one will come to the Father but by Him. That was what Felix had. Which came out? The lady or the tiger? I don't know. But here's what I do know through Jesus' life. If you choose the other door, it's condemnation. It's pretty simple. Then the question is, what will you do with Jesus? Send him away for a more convenient time. What's more convenient than right now? There is a beautiful description of what you will find for yourself when you trust Jesus Christ as Savior. And it was a poem that was written 300 years ago. Here's what it says. Not real easy to follow. This is kind of a a thinker poem. But it's really good stuff. So try to follow it as carefully as you can. By the way, some of you have sung it. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness. My beauty are. My glorious dress. I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Midst flaming worlds, in these arrayed with joy, shall I lift up my head. Bold shall I stand in thy great day, for who ought to my charge shall lay. Fully absolved through these I am from sin and fear. From guilt and shame. It's behind that door. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege to look into your word once again and to see this theme that continues to recur that Christ is all. He is our hope He is our protector. He is our high tower. He is our life. And Father, I pray that in the quietness of these moments, for any who do not know Christ yet as their Savior, that they may not choose the wrong door, but that they may reach out in faith And rest in Christ and his finished work at Calvary for their forgiveness and for their life. Father, only you can draw sinful creatures like us to yourself. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would do his work that will be of eternal value for the glory of your name. Amen.